Hi, and welcome to Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anisha Hussain. You may know me as the Bangladeshi American cable news commentator who debates toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Or maybe you've read my articles on CNN about toxic white supremacy. While I may be a pro at giving my opinion and analysis on the headlines, something you don't get to hear me do is ask the questions and talk about something other than the news. And that's what I'm all about doing right now, because between coronavirus, a global lockdown, and social isolation, my Persian cats and I need a break. This podcast, Spilling Chai, is about conversations. I want to feel inspired, and radio is such a great medium to have really in-depth conversations and to take the time to have them. In this show, I'm going to be talking to brilliant writers, passionate activists, and amazing artists, and I want you to join us. This podcast is also a PSA on behalf of all brown people that in most of Asia and the Middle East, chai is not a latte. Instead, it's the best kind of tea. And on this podcast, we are all about spilling it. So pour yourself a cup and pull up a seat. Hello, fabulous listeners. Welcome to episode numero cinco, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., How is everyone doing? I hope you all are hanging in there. As we enter month two of quarantine and social distancing, not only are we all getting in touch with our inner Frida Kahlo's and learning to embrace our outer unibras, it is more important now than ever to find and focus on silver linings. One of the big benefits of slowing down, or really having no choice but to slow down, is the opportunity you have to look back on your work, your career, your family, and actually appreciate the big blessings in your life. These days, I've been thinking a lot about dreams. When I was growing up in Bangladesh in the 1980s, my biggest dream was to get to Bollywood. (laughs) But lucky for everyone, especially my parents, I found and settled on my true passion pretty early on, journalism and writing. That being said, I never imagined any kind of career or even a cameo in American media. I first came to the States to go to college in 1998 at the University of Virginia, UVA. Wahoo! And the number of people who looked like me on TV back then compared to the diversity you see on air now has basically remained unchanged. Just look at the numbers. The U.S. population might be changing, but American newsrooms are not reflecting that diversity. And it's just a fact. According to the Status of Women in the United States Media 2017 report, not only is 79% of people working in the publishing industry in America white, only 16.6% of newspaper staff, daily newspaper staff that is, are people of color. The report also found that 37% of news articles and opinion pieces regarding reproductive rights and related issues were written by women. In a nutshell, when newsrooms and the media aren't diverse, crucial perspectives and facts get missed. My point is that there are so few women of color in the news in this country as anchors, commentators, reporters, that even when you make it from the control room to the green room, you'll be lucky if you find anyone else that looks like you, which is what makes our guest today even more amazing. How does one become an unapologetic woman of color in the media, in the media and the world? Lucky for us, we have Rula Gibriel here today to ask her exactly that. Rula is a visiting professor at the University of Miami, an author, foreign policy analyst, and an international media superstar whose career ranges from Italy to America to the Middle East. Born in Haifa, Israel, Rula grew up in Jerusalem, where her father was an imam at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. She and her sister, Reina, were raised in an orphanage. 
1993, Rula received a scholarship from the Italian government to study at the University of Bologna, and she worked as a journalist in Italy for 12 years. Rula is the author of three books, including Miral, and her latest book, Rejected, which is a nonfiction study based on interviews with immigrants in Italian society. So, Rula, welcome to Spilling Chai. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is truly an honor to have you on. So you have had such an amazing international career, which is not only fascinating, but no easy accomplishment, especially as a woman of color. How did you start your work in journalism? Well, it all started when I lived in Jerusalem as a teenager. So I would go to the refugee camps when I was 15 and to, to keep school open. So would teach kids how to write and read. And I remember seeing their suffering there houses destroyed, families shattered by the occupation, by the oppression. And I remember watching television, going back to my home and watching television and seeing a different narrative that we told to Western audiences, whether I watched BBC or CNN. And I was horrified by that. I was like, what's going on? The juxtaposition between facts on the ground versus what was told on television was a total different reality, the opposite of what I've seen. So I arrived to Italy and I started, again, seeing the same pattern of basically Western media that never included local or native voices. The narrative was always from the prism of Washington, D.C., London, New York, Paris, but there's never an effort to understand the root causes of the dysfunction in the Middle East. And this is where it all picked up. And it was coincidental because then you have the first intifada in 2000, the second intifada in 2000, the desire and need for the first time in Italy to have local voices. And so I called the network one day and I complained. And I said, guys, you're not getting the big pictures. You are not understanding what you're saying is you're repeating the talking points of basically lobbyist groups or propagandists. So you need to have, in order to form a public opinion, a healthy public opinion, you need to have voices of people who report from the region, talk the language of the region, and understand the desires and aspirations. And this is how it all started. Sexual assault allegations, Russian election interference, the Mueller report, Ukraine, impeachment, U.S. pulling out of Syria, making, quote, peace deals with the Taliban. Do you think the credibility of U.S. foreign policy will survive after Trump? No, no, no. It's dead already. Let's put it this way. If America was not America, it would be called a failed state. We are living in a failed state. So two things happened. A year ago, I was an advisor to the G7 on the gender equality group. And I remember a week before the meeting of G7 states, Two weeks earlier, there was a terrorist attack in New Zealand, and the Prime Minister of New Zealand came to Paris, and she led the effort to combat radicalization online. It was called the Christchurch effort to combat radicalization online. Guess what? America was the only one that did not sign that effort or that treaty. And today, again, it happened again. There was a global effort to create a global fund to combat COVID-19. America refused to be part of the global effort to combat a pandemic. In the meantime, Americans are basically dying in droves, like 70,000, I believe they died, and hundreds of thousands are infected. America is number one, the number one country 
for infected people, yet it's led by a guy that doesn't believe in science, believe in conspiracy theory, until two months ago, he called it a hoax, a democratic hoax. So we're looking at reality where the United States on global stage has disappeared. And Trump and his cronies used to say, oh, we are respected. I'm a foreign policy expert and I travel around the world. He's considered a laughing stock. People are laughing at him. Allies and foes alike, they think America is led by a reality TV star who lives in an alternative cuckoo plan. And sadly, Americans are going to die and hundreds of thousands are going to die because of the choices they made in 2016. This guy has blood on his hands. But the worst part about this is he being enabled by a Republican Party that does not care about human lives, American lives. When they tell you that they're a country, that a party of law and order, and you see these thugs holding guns, trying to storm the Capitol state buildings, you know, contaminate and basically putting, endangering other people's lives, threatening lawmakers and police officers. This is when you know that they don't care about anything except power. What is your take? Do you think Trump will come back in 2020? Do you think he'll win the 2020 elections? I predicted his victory in an op-ed in the Washington Post in 2015, where my colleagues were laughing and saying, you don't understand America. I happened to have read the signals. And with all the noise, everybody was focused on the noise, and few were focused on the signals. I focused on the signal. I believe we're 50-50. Today, I was reading about how many body bags he ordered, 100,000, while he's arguing publicly to open, basically, the state, reopen the states and send workers, black workers, to work in these factories, meat packing factories, where 70% of these workers are infected, and they're going to die. So he doesn't care about their lives. What he cares about is his capitalist system. So it stays in place, so his cronies and his corrupt elite can benefit from that system as much as possible. And that's why he's focusing in the economy in a moment where you cannot think of the economy without a healthy population, healthy customers, consumers, working class, he does not care about all of that. There's an amazing article that came out, I believe, in the New Yorker two days ago about Jared Kushner, his son-in-law, mm-hmm. and one New York executive, Wall Street executive, talked to him and he said, you know, Jared, maybe you have a chance if Trump gets reelected to do the right thing and do good for the people and push their sentence, sums up the Trump presidency. I don't care about anyone. Of course, there's so much talk now about Biden and the allegations against Biden. If Americans didn't care about all the women that accused Trump of sexual allegations, sexual assault, do you think Americans will care about the allegation against Biden? I think we need to focus on while Trump was accused by 15 women, Yes, he was voted by white women, an overwhelming majority. College educated, yes. College educated, because we turned this country into identity, like the identity policy. So we're divided along racial, religious, ideological lines, okay? And this is really dangerous for democracy. You have states in the South where the punishment for abortion trumps and is higher than the punishment for rape. This is when you know it's not about women's rights or her controlling her body. It is a war on women. Regarding Joe Biden, I think this needs to be investigated and needs to be 
we need to be transparent about who we are putting in that White House. Mm -hmm. The women marched the day after Trump was elected. Three million women went in the streets. These are the same women that elected 100 and plus women to the Congress in 2018. We are a huge force in this nation, and we can shift the politics when it comes to our rights. So we need to examine the facts for what they are. But I know also another thing, which is I think President Obama was thorough in his vetting of Joe Biden. I believe if there's any man that could find dirt and he didn't want any scandal, he wanted to have an administration that is scandal free. And we did have for eight years a government that was scandal free. Okay. So I put all of these facts together. And the way forward is to give this woman the possibility to tell her story. We listen to the facts and we judge them for what they are. I want Joe Biden to be transparent. I want him to treat this as an important issue because he needs women vote, but also because he needs to send a signal to the country that any kind of, don't dismiss this, look into it for what it is. I believe her name is Tara Reid. If Tara Reid is not telling the truth, then we will face that. But if Joe Biden is not telling the truth, he doesn't deserve to be president. So it's Mother's Day this month, or Mother's Month, as I think we should really call it. You talk about Hind Hosseini, the founder of the orphanage where you were raised, as your teacher and mother. Your own mother passed away by suicide when you were five years old. Today, you are a mother to a beautiful young woman. What has motherhood been like for you? Tell us about what motherhood means to you. Wow, what a difficult question. This is maybe the most difficult question I ever had to answer. I miss my daughter. Let's start like this. I'm in lockdown here in Florida. She's in Italy. And I honestly, this pandemic, if there's anything that is so horrifying about this, is separating us from people who we love, we care about. While my family is all over the place, Italy, Palestine, and it's just painful in this moment not to jump on a plane and go and celebrate her birthday. And I remember a year ago when we were together in San Francisco. So what is for me motherhood? It was the most incredible love experience. It's unconditional love because you're putting into the world this being, but you're responsible of their well-being, of their future. And it's incredible to see them growing up and start challenging you and your ideas, your core. I thought my core was consolidated in the refugee camps through the experience of my mom, Hint Hussein, who really believed in education and educating and building generations of citizens. My really core as an activist was constituted in those refugee camps, but also in the orphanage. I was already a mother when I was eight years old because I would take care of those kids who were four and five. That was, you know, the sharing of responsibility, putting them to bed, washing their hands, reading them a story at night. I was already being a mother to my sister who was four. I was five. So I developed this protective instinct of children and girls early on in my life. Is that motherhood? I don't know. But it has this incredible protective instinct. What I didn't understand later, how missing my own mother who died would affect my life. And I think until now, there's gaps, emotional gaps. You know, I look up to 
incredibly strong women. And I can imagine what my mom would have been. And what do I wanted her to be? I can't imagine all of that because I didn't have that experience. But then I have a daughter who looks at me and she tells me clearly what her mother should do and must do. And then all of that is we grew up together. I was 23 when I had her. She's now 23. So we go out together and sometimes she treats me like her mom, but sometimes she talks to me like I'm her, her friend. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not your friend. I'm your mom. And I tried to assert my authority through convincing her and negotiation. But also she is my conscience outside of my mind. Somehow reacted in inappropriate towards anybody. My daughter is the first one to hold me to account. And I love that because this is how I grew up and I developed as a human being. And she did that at an early age. I mean, I remember being on television and challenging this politician and being very proud of myself and going back home. And my daughter was 14. And she said, what was that about? Excuse me? <laughs> like, what was that about? Like, you are too aggressive. You lost your audience. I'm like, wow. My daughter's coaching, lecturing me about how do I need to be a drug. I thought it was fascinating. So if you are a mom, right? think today in this global pandemic, look to your daughters, your children, and inject them with confidence so they can become leader of the future. I remember my mentor, Hussaini, injected doses of confidence in us. She made us believe that we could reshape this reality and rewrite our own destiny. It didn't matter if I was black. It didn't matter if I was skinny. It didn't matter if I was an orphan. What mattered is my ideas and how much I fought for them and the hard work that I put into implementing these ideas and study hard and work hard and you can rewrite your own list. This is what she convinced us to do. So this is what I try to do with my daughter and also with my student at the university. Yeah. I try to push them, make history because I believe they can. So in a world that is constantly challenging and questioning the spaces that women of color are allowed in, what is your advice to brown and black women who dare to be unapologetic in whatever it is they do in their careers, in their day-to-day lives? How does one become Rula Jibrial in this world? So I'll come close to the camera and I want to talk to you closely. If you're a girl watching us, and this is I learned early on from women activists in my neighborhood in Jerusalem. And I remember these women were shy and, and you know, they had struggled all their lives. But when a soldier would come and arrest their children, they become tigers and they would push him and they would basically prevent him from arresting their kids. They fought for their children's life. I never seen anything like this. But also I remember one of them who was not an activist, a simple, humble woman. And she told me, and I said, you're not scared. You know, he has a weapon and it's semi-automatic. He can shoot us in two seconds. And she said, what does not get into your head? The only way to get through a door is to break that door. So ladies, girls, power never concede anything without demand. Never did, never will. The only way they will understand if you go and grab it. So yeah. break that door and get through it. Because, you know, men will never apologize for their own ambition. If they tell you you're ambitious or you're aggressive, it's a cold language to say, step out of the way. This is our space. No, I'm sorry. That's not going to happen. So take what you want, work hard for it, work harder, and call them out on their BS. And yes. Call them out on their misogyny, sexes. Don't be scared. Don't ever let fear rule your life. 
that was my motto all my life. I got fired sometimes. So yes, sometimes I had these threats and attacks and trolling and all that. But guess what? My North Star was always the conviction that I was born free. We are born free and we're deserving to equal opportunity, whether they want it or not. Mm. But also I'm convinced that the arch of history is long, but always bends toward justice, but you need to bend it. So bend it. Yes. Don't ever get scared and kick that door and break it in three. That's my advice to girls. You know what? The more they attack you, you're doing something right. You're doing oh. something right. They're making feel uncomfortable. Make them feel uncomfortable. They're not entitled to your time, to your opinion. They're not entitled to who you are or to impose on you what strategy is the right one according to them so you can get or be part of the group. You don't want to be part of the group. You want to break the group and build a new group. Even though I grew up in Bangladesh with so many strong women of color to look up to, when I first came to the States, I found that I was immediately met with the poor brown woman stereotype. I felt like we were viewed as a monolith. Charity cases, oppressed, women who needed to be rescued from our backward cultures. It's so refreshing now to think that my own two young daughters will be growing up in an America where they're going to see women like Rula, read women like Soraya Shamali, and hopefully refuse to ever be limited by the color of their skin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spilling Chai Podcast. If you're looking for past episodes or anything else, check out our website, SpillingChai.com. Stay safe, healthy, and at least six feet apart, my listeners. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai.